0: Before going into surgery, your blood sample is sent to a laboratory for analysis. The analysis recognizes your blood type and the antibodies in the blood. and This information is used to make sure that the right type of blood is available during surgery, in case it's needed. It's critical that the process the blood samples go through is flawless. EnerSoft is a 20-year-old company that makes the software that runs those laboratories. And that's just one of the several projects in which they help their customers reach boss level. Based in Tampere, Finland, they're looking for a developer to join their ranks. They focus on long-term relationships with their customers and their employees. No full-time employee has ever left the company. Check out their website at enersoft.fi. The link is in the show notes. Welcome back to the third season of the Boss Level Podcast, the podcast on people and organizations aiming for the boss level. The listener base of the podcast keeps growing, so thank you for sharing the episodes. And what's interesting is that the audience keeps getting more and more international. So uh, during the first season, roughly 90% of listeners were from Finland, but now the biggest country is Sweden, next is the US, and Finland is third. So tak, thank you, kitos. As the audience keeps growing, I keep getting the feeling that more interaction would be great, so let's do a small experiment. Send me an email with a question regarding some of the topics of this podcast. Maybe something you heard on the podcast that you didn't quite wrap your head around, or maybe something that you're struggling with in your organization today, or maybe something else. Send your questions to sami at com. That's S-A-M-I at Podcast.com, and I might read it on the podcast and answer it. Okay, but let's get started on today's main theme. The interview you're about to hear was recorded in Paris, France. I interviewed Dominic Türk. Dominic is a French consultant and researcher who wants to help companies get ready for the future. We talk about upcoming technologies, endless beta culture, individual evaluation systems, his lessons from McKinsey, and many other topics. We also cover his book, Augmented Management, which looks at the trends companies should be aware of and the skills that individuals should develop to be better equipped to deal with the future. Enjoy the episode.
1: I wanted to be a professor, so I did a a management school, HEC in Paris, and then I did a PhD in corporate sociology, and I became a professor. So I've been teaching at uh, HEC and at INSEAD, two major French schools here. and after a few years I discovered that this was not really absolutely what I wanted to do. So I switched to um uh, consulting. So I went to McKinsey where I've been spending 13 years. Um and uh, after McKinsey I I uh, I went to a large corporation, Manpower, where I became the SVP for strategy based in Milwaukee, so I moved to the US for a few years. Um and after that, um, in between also I had worked for government in a certain number of uh, of special research centers for the government. Um, and after that, I decided that I really wanted to have my own research uh, institute and my own consulting firm at a very low, small scale. I decided to be small um, and to be relevant. Um, and this is what I'm doing for the last uh, 12 years, 14 years. Twelve years, sorry, uh, with uh, the Boston Institute, um, where I conduct researches, um, and obviously I do some consulting on the evolution of management. Where do we go? How do we go there? What kind of skills do we need to acquire? How do we change corporations, etc.
0: Wow, that's that's an impressive history. So you have. Uh, like academic history, then consulting, and then, like, as a manager for real, <laughs> like yes, in a company. Yes. Yeah. And,
1: and I was also in the, in the, in the administration, yeah. which, which helps me to have uh, this is why right. I have, have some difficulties to, to define myself because mm-hmm. I'm all this at the same time. I I like government activities, uh, and I think we need to have some sort of political responsibilities. I like business and corporate activities because corporation is really the place where you act on society. Mm -hmm. And I like the thinking part where you really have to see a bit longer uh, on the longer term than just if you manage. One of the problems of management, even if you are in a in a strategy position Mm -hmm. where you have to think long term, your long term is actually short. Yeah. It's two, three years at max. Okay. Well, you are, when you are thinking, you have to think at 10 years or more. Sure, sure. And I think, uh, especially with consultant, consulting gigs, it's,
0: it's easy to have a very short focus. It's like your engagement is six months and, and after that you're out. So uh, how do you deal, deal with that? You're doing consulting now, doesn't that lead to
1: a short-term focus? Uh, probably I was in a good school with McKinsey, uh, because when you are with McKinsey, you, uh, you have a short-term view, obviously, because you have to solve the problem of the client within the next few months, but you have to do it in a long-term perspective. And today, I'm working more on the long-term perspective and on a short-term view. So most of my engagements today are more helping clients to see the long-term perspective and to translate it into actions for the, for the short term. Um, so I think, I think McKinsey was really a good school from that angle. And I'm still thinking a lot the way I learned to think when I was at McKinsey. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, let's talk a little about that. Uh, like, What do you feel
1: are the most important lessons that you learned from, from your years at McKinsey? Um, long-term thinking, for for sure. Um, some sort of holistic thinking. So let's not just look at uh, the short-term strategic issues, but lo- look. let's look at sociological changes, technological changes. As you know, McKinsey has a major research center called the McKinsey Global Institute. And I've been with the Global Institute for two or three years. And it's really a place where you really think long-term. And and you try to translate it into short term policies or short term strategies. Short term meaning the next three years uh, for for corporations. Um, and and this is probably what I learned. Uh, all the rest is technique. Uh, mm-hmm. Techniques you can learn anywhere. But the way to think long term and to translate it, there's this sort of helicopter view. You have to look on the long term, but you have to translate it in today's activities. This is something I learned there. I think. Yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think about the, like, how did you like the working culture? Because I, I know a lot of people work their asses off and, and feel that it's hard to combine the McKinsey working culture with, uh, with having a family, for example.
1: That's not, that e- that's not very easy. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, um, since I was uh, in, in a very international position with McKinsey, uh, the problem with me was not the quantity of work. It was more the quantity of travels. Mm-hmm. I yes. was traveling all the time. Yeah, sure. And actually, one of the reasons I left, um, uh, this, bi- uh, consulting and then business career in 2004 when I left uh, Manpower. One of the reason is I realized that for the last 20 years, 20 years, I had been traveling at least one intercontinental flight a week. At least. Wow. Sometime twice. Two. So this was just horrible. And I, that's I, I crazy. thought that's yeah. too much yeah. for my health, for my family, obviously. Um, and I decided to, to really stop that. Um, and I've been very successful, by the way. I'm having <laughs> much less today. I'm having max three or four intercontinental flights a year, not a week or a month. So uh, currently through your consulting company, uh, what kind of work do you do? Currently, it's mostly around how to um, adjust to the future for senior executives um, which means, uh, first, some sort of awareness work. How can we help um, senior executives to be aware of what happens in the world today? Um, second is, once they start to be aware, how can they, should they uh, adjust to this new world, both in their mind and in their actions, okay? And then it, it, it has to deal with transformation. How do we transform the organization? Um, to make a long story short, to explain to you on, on which level I'm working, um, there was a, a Swiss uh, uh, psychosociologist called Piaget who said, um, we um, see the world all our lifelong as it was when we were a young adult, so between 15 and 25. So our image of the world was shaped with the world we were living in when we were between 15 and 25, okay? But when you are 35 or 45 or 55, the world has changed. But your analysis of the world hasn't changed enough. So what I'm trying to do is to explain to senior executives how the world is today if possible, how it will be tomorrow, which is not that difficult to forecast, frankly, tomorrow meaning the next ten years, we know what the world will be in ten years, we know that so and then to adjust their thinking um, and their um, way of building their reactions to at least the current world, uh, just just an example must actually must all senior executives of today, were born in a world without social networks. Sure. When they were between 15 and 25, there were no social networks. For them today to understand the huge power of social networks on politics, on decision, on reputation, etc., um, takes some time. Um, the marketing guys have been relatively fast. The others, not that fast. So one of the things is to explain to them how social networks work as a change agent in society. And why, therefore, we have to look at society with with the glasses of social networks, not only obviously, but this is one of the glasses we have to put on their on their eyes, um, and and this is one of the stuff I'm I'm doing because the, frankly, just put yourself in the in the shoes of a senior executive, forty five years old, he has been working like hell for the last twenty years, he didn't have really enough time to look at what happens to the, to society, even to geopolitics. He follows it on the news. Okay, that's fine. He, he reads a bit. Okay. But really, most of his time is dedicated to work and his daily work. And especially if he's not in a strategic job, he doesn't see the world. So, it's important to help them understand the implications. Sure. Uh,
0: it's actually funny that like most of the people that I've interviewed, when we talk about the future, and let's say the future in 10 years, what they say is, it is it's re- really hard to predict what's going to happen in 10 years, and that we're, we have no idea what's gonna, uh, what the world is going to be like in 10 years. And you say that it's easy to know, that we, we know what, what the
1: world is going to be like in 10 years. So I'm, I'm intrigued. Tell me, what, what's the world going to be like in 10 years? <laughs> it, it depends on the point of view you take, okay? Sure. Um, it's a- absolutely impossible to tell that a new technology will arrive in five and a half years and will change the world. No, that that you can't do because these are um, discrete uh, events. Or we may have a war, a huge war in five years. Discrete events, absolutely not predictable. Um, But most of the changes are actually linked to continuous events, things which are changing progressively. Now, just take a few examples. Social networks, they're not going away within the next 10 years, are going to take more and more importance. So your reputation as a company, as an individual, will be more transparent, will be harder to manage. Everybody can see that. I mean, it's, it's not hard to ex- at least see that the tendency might not be linear, but might actually be exponential. It will be f- worse and worse or better and better. Cool. Um, let's take even with new completely revolutionary technology like CRISPR. Um, CRISPR is here.
0: Let me just jump in here quickly. You might not be familiar with the term CRISPR, so let's clarify that before we move forward. CRISPR is a new genome editing tool that might transform the field of biology. CRISPR allows scientists to edit genomes to prevent HIV infections, cure genetic diseases, or it might even lead to genetically designed human babies. Okay, now back to the interview.
1: Within the next 10 years, CRISPR will invade all um, the elements of our life, the food we are going to eat, the children we are going to have, the dogs we are going to have. So CRISPR will change everything, the mosquitoes which are going to carry or not, the Zika or whatever. Um, CRISPR will change the world. We know that. How it will change and how we will accept this change is something different. And this is hard to predict. Um, but in a way, we don't have the choice. Um, CRISPR will change the way we have children within the next 10 or 20 years. That's for sure. Um, How many people will accept that? How normal will it be in our future life? Nobody knows, but it will be here. It was the same thing in 2004, 2006 when social networks arrived. You couldn't tell what they would do, but you could see that social networks were going to change drastically our society, to change drastically the way we manage people, to change drastically the way we access information and discuss information. We could see that. Many people didn't see the strength of this implication. They didn't see that their marketing would be totally changed, but it was possible to see it. So my point today is for a number of of technologies – a number of social changes, um, uh, it is possible to forecast some of the changes and therefore to plan to adjust to them. Um, even at, at least to plan to ask the right questions.
0: And this is uh, pretty much the topic of your book, Augmented Management. Mm-hmm. So uh,
1: can we talk a little about that? Like, what, what is augmented management? What do you mean with the term? Nothing with technology, so it doesn 't mean we <laughs> are going to implant a number of chips <laughs> in our brain. It may happen because when it 's in it's an augmented body, but it 's not at all the uh, the topic of my book. Um, here, the idea was more okay, what are the skills we use today as a senior executive or as an executive or as a simple manager? Uh, which skills are we going to need tomorrow? That was the question okay. Interestingly um, enough, most of the skills we use or we refer to today are more or less hard skills. The skills you learn at school, with those skills which are in your CV. The CV, uh, in a way, becomes a commodity. I mean, people with your CV or people with my CV, You can you go, you go on LinkedIn and you find thousands of them. So the CV is a commodity. It doesn't create a difference. It doesn't tell me if you will be a great manager or not. It doesn't tell somebody who wants to work with me if I'm a great consultant. No, because the CV doesn't say anything except a little bit for the references or companies you've been working for before. But but frankly, even that, you find hundreds of people. So what makes the difference? And the difference are the new skills we need to develop. For instance, we need to be able to have uh, 360 degrees of the world. This is very important. Do we understand what happens in the world around us? So it's a little bit foresight, a little bit insight, uh, but it's something else than just working on on our rails. It's this openness of mind. Um, It is the ability to um, take distance. You, you You have seen in the last two, three years the number of People saying that we need to relax, to practice Zen, uh, meditation, etc. It has drastically increased within the last three, four years. And this was one of the apps I mentioned in my book because all the skills, I call them apps. Okay, uh, I mentioned the one called Zazen um, because I think we need to learn how to uh, meditate. And in my view, this is one of the skills of the augmented management. Be able to take the psychological distance with what happens every day. That's another skill. Um, So I I describe, I I think, 20 or 25 skills in that book. But um, another one, very simple, actually, uh, because the ones I just mentioned are a bit complex. But a very simple one, for instance, is do you know how to write in the digital world? Do you know how to write a tweet? Do you know how to write a blog page? Do you know how to write a mail? How many people don't know how to write a mail, don't even change the title of the mail when the content has changed a lot in the discussion? So – and these are habits which really help us to manage better in the future. So I have identified a few a few skills like that. Um, surprisingly enough, I called them apps um, uh, when I wrote the book three years ago. But at this time, there was no app, uh, real app. So sometimes people were asking me, where is the app store? And it was just a joke. Um, but now, if you go to the app store, you have meditating apps. A lot of them. <laughs> it's great. So you have- someone implemented them for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they did. It's just incredible. You even have apps on how to manage your teams. It's just incredible. Um, so, And that's good. That's what's really good. I, I like that a number of people have developed um, elements on your smartphone helping you to manage better. Mm-hmm. Or on your computer for some of them. So it's, it's really interesting to see that this notion of, um, let's call it human capital. My human capital, your human capital, human capital of everybody is not just our CV. Our value on the market, human capital, is the combination of all the other elements, um, and these other elements, if we do not develop them, we become autists. We become just our machines, Well, machines able to practice a, a certain number of hard skills, which we don't want to become. So what and how do we develop these skills helping us to develop, to increase our human capital as an employee, as a colleague, as a consultant, as even uh, uh, um, uh, a family person, how do we relate with others? How do we socialize? So these are really skills which have nothing to do with what you learn at school.
0: Sure, and, and one of the one of the characteristics of an augmented manager that you mention in the book is b- the ability to live permanently in a beta culture.
1: So can you talk a little about that? What do you, what do you mean with that? It's it's um it's. I think a relatively classic concept, which the Google and company have developed for, for, for decades now, the, the idea is that it's very hard to conceive a change going from A to B, with the as is and the to be, and a way between the two. We know that you are never going to reach B, because B does not exist. It will be a B Prime, B, second, be, whatever you want. It will be something else. Um, and we know that. No project today will end as is planned at the beginning. So first we have to accept that, which is not that easy, because in our education system we have learned to take a project and bring it to to to, to the end. Um, so first we have to accept that we live in a beta world. That means things are going to change. New uh, new elements are going to appear, and uh, new uh, strategic points uh, points in the end. our environment are going to change the conditions. Blah blah blah. So. We need to be flexible, and this flexibility is a real skill. Working in a better world and accepting a better world means not only reacting to changes, but being able to see things which are going to happen and challenge what we're, going, what we're doing now. Take your team and say, hey, guys, we're going to change something within the project. Um, and that, that requires some courage. Because suddenly you have to tell people, well, we've been working on this, but, uh, well, we changed direction, we changed the objective, we changed the team, we changed this, we changed that. So we need to learn how to accept and work in, in this beta world. The world is
0: very uncertain and there's going to be changes all the time. And instead of kind of trying to make it more certain, you try to learn to deal with the uncertainty and just accept that it's there and we're going to have to deal with it and not even try to control it. But just accept that that it's going to change.
1: And and it's it's absolutely true and to me this is really a a difficult skill, which is not in your CV by the way. Sure. (laughs) Uh, uh, And and it's it's a real difficult one because yes, the world is uncertain, Um, uh, but not not only uncertain. You have, uh, just from a management point of view, if, if anything changes within your Team or within the environment, uh, you you have to be able to to change the way you work. It's not new, by the way. It has always been the case, but today it's more acceptable, and it's I think it's more really a skill because things change relatively uh, fast. And um, I I think it is even going further than that. It is. Can we forecast within the ecosystem of our project, of our team, of our company, can we be better at forecasting what may happen? And not only at reacting to what is happening, you see? Um and 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 this requires the skill I was mentioned right at the beginning, which is this hundred sixty stuff. If if I'm a biologist today and I have a large biology project for the next ten years, and suddenly the CRISPR technology has arrived for the last two three years, now it's very new, but we start we start to see where it goes. I probably have to change many of my plans, taking into account this new technology. But, and the, the 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 earliest I see this new stuff, the better I will be with my strategy and my team. so it's more it's not only a question of reacting to the uncertain world. it's also a question of more or less predicting or being able to see a weak signal what's going to impact what I'm
0: doing today. and I guess that means that. Uh Instead of like just having a strategy that like we're gonna focus now that we we know that uh, autonomous vehicles are gonna change our business and we're gonna have a strategy that uh, takes us in that direction, and instead of that, you can also just think of it as like building a good, good solid foundation for like if it happens, we'll be ready.
1: Yeah, um, and, and and namely, this has a major implication on the corporate human capital. I was mentioning the individual's human capital before. Uh, and now, if I'm a corporation, and I have all these scenarios all these possibilities in front of me, the, the simplest and easiest answer today is to hire the right guys. So if data, if, if big data will be really important, I, and I don't know yet how, let me, let's hire data scientists, okay? If mobility um, will be the important point, and if actually m- m- vehicles in my scenario, would be more collective vehicles. Let's hire a great urbanist um, or a guy able to program properly or at least to understand the programming of uh, people's mobility. So these are the sort of skills I need within my corporate human capital body. Even if I don't use them to their full potential today, but frankly, if I if I have a little bit of imagination, a little bit of creativity, I will use them and I will even maybe myself be an actor of the next scenario. So and, and this is really my the point I was making before. Should I react or should I act? If I have the right people at one point of time um I may become a real actor here. Uh, I work with a construction company, for instance, and there construction company are very traditional. Okay, um, but if I, at one point of time, they said, "Well, robotics is going to change uh, construction. We don't know how, but robotics will change." Let's hire uh, top-notch robotics engineers out of the best French schools, and they, these guys, at the beginning, didn't know exactly why they were hired, what they were doing, and suddenly they start to to explore things, and they developed for one of the subsidiary a small robots. Able to um, do welding underwater, which is really a very top technology, which requires high-skilled people. It's very dangerous, very complicated. And they developed a robot to do that. And suddenly, this robot, all the other subsidiaries of this company start to see, hey, we could use that sort of stuff. So, suddenly, this is expanding. It's just the beginning. But maybe tomorrow, you will see this company becoming a leader in robotics in construction. Wow. That's impressive, yeah. That's really interesting, yeah. Um,
0: Yeah, Uh, do you? Can you share anything more about that? Like, how how did this like how did you get the managers or the people in the company involved uh, to to kind of uh, be brave enough to hire a robotics person so early on without without knowing if it's going to work or not?
1: In this case, they did it without me, which is, which is even better they, did, they didn 't need a consultant for that, but they were aware that something was okay. was happening okay. um, but one of my um, of my jobs today is really to help them take that sort of risk um, and and see what kind of skills um, they could put within their human capital um, and it, it might be the, um, the robotics engineers is is an extreme case. But more is, a more easier case, for instance, is how do we create within the organization today a collaborative culture or a collective intelligence culture? This is something you can do today, and you know you will need it tomorrow. Even if today, in a way, you can work without it in your company. It may be the case. You have to know, and this is a trend, that it's just impossible to, for, to work in 10 years from now without a very strong internal Um, collaborative culture. So how do you start? What do you you put in place? And I'm not saying which, which software do you put in place. I don't care if you use Yammer or another one. But what is important is how do you start to create a collaborative culture? And this means, for instance, how do you value people who collaborate? How do you value what is given on internal networks? How do you value this when you do the evaluation at the end of the year? So creating a collaborative culture is Technically, not that difficult. Culturally, it is difficult. But it's something you can put in place today for tomorrow.
0: Yeah, actually, that's one of the things that you also discuss in your book like evaluation systems and evaluating people and performance reviews. And so, one of the things that you say is that evaluations and evaluation systems that don't take into account the collective and collaborative elements of corporate life are no longer fit for purpose. So, can you explain a little about that? Like, what, what do you mean? Like, how, what's wrong with the evaluation systems
1: that we have today? Um, first, uh, a background on this uh, I strongly believe HR is um, the most important strategic asset a company has today, because the HR is managing the, um, the human capital asset as an asset of the company. And therefore, if you don't change the quality of this asset, you may not be fit for the future. Okay, that's that's the, the background behind most of what I'm doing today, and I think there's a a, a a conundrum between strategy and HR, and we we cannot think of one without thinking of the other. It's not clear everywhere, uh, but but now companies start to realize, large companies, I'm I'm, I'm saying, start to realize that they need the right HR to implement the right strategy and vice versa, by the way. Uh, They need the right strategy to motivate their HR. So it's it's really complicated, um, complex, sorry. So um, evaluation system. It's it's very strange today. Still in many companies, you have a, a new culture element telling to everybody you have to collaborate um, But at the end of the year, I will evaluate you individually, and of what you have been doing as an individual. And th- this means our and everybody contests today the yearly evaluation. General Electric just gave it up, and, and number, Cisco gave it up some time ago. In many countries, like France, it's a legal requirement. But okay, we can live with a legal requirement and have another evaluation system close to it. So that's fine. Um, so the, 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 the point is, okay, Mr. Boss, you want me to collaborate, but how will you evaluate my collaboration? Will you ask my colleagues if I've been useful or not? Uh, will you um, check what I have shared or will you check how many posts I've been putting on the networks? which is absurd, okay? Um, or will you check how many people liked my post, which is also really less absurd, still absurd, but less absurd? Will you evaluate how many people have been using the best practice I have been putting on the blogs? That starts to be more interesting. So the, I'm not saying the new evaluation system is simple. OK, um, but the former one was not very simple either. Uh, and by the way, our HR guys for the last 20 years have developed extremely sophisticated competencies, reviews or whatever, um, which in today's world have less and less meaning. So um, my point is, let's reinvent evaluation system uh, with part of um uh, part of the evaluation relying on in individuals because we should not forget the individual. The individual is a very important asset. But let's also look at how this individual contributes and uses uh, the collective wisdom, uh, the the, the, um, the collaborative uh, element of, of a company. How do we um, see if somebody has helped has had the creativity or even the innovation within the company, how is how people have really had others to go faster or further, um because we can't live without that. We we, we live in, in a cooperative world, in a collaboration world within companies today. So we need to evaluate that. If you if you stick to the yearly evaluation on your individual performances, forget it. It's, it's 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 just absurd. It's not absurd because it's from the 20th century. It's absurd because it's, it doesn't relate to the world of today. And it goes even further. I think um, – and companies are not fully ready for that. Um, we should not only check how people collaborate um, or contribute to the collective intelligence inside, but also how they use and collaborate to the outside. Let me give a simple example. Any one of us has a certain number of professional skills. For these professional skills, how do we develop them? One of the ways to develop them is to be member of groups outside and to see what happens and to have an, an, an intelligence of everything which happens around our skills. And if possible, to take what we learn outside and to bring it inside so that we are, we are a better employee and we share better with others. How do we evaluate that? And I give you a practical example which shocks me all the time because most companies work like that. You send a guy to a forum at the other end of the world where he's going to spend three days with the best specialist in his field. Okay? You send him there. It costs you his per diem, the trips, whatever. The, the forums cost a lot of money. And when he comes back, hello, did you have a good time over there? Oh, yes, it was nice. Hold on, guys. Who did you meet? What did you learn? How can you transfer this into the company? These are important questions. We have paid you for going there. Now you need to explain to them. Few companies have this as a ritual. Somebody comes back from a forum, we don't even ask him to have a one-pager on what he learned, who he met. You see, And, and this is part of the evaluation. Have you been bringing inside the best things you have learned outside? So we need to change the evaluation system how about if we talk about knowledge work and the like the
0: concept of evaluating knowledge workers uh, at a very fundamental level if we think about the work that knowledge workers do it is really hard to to put a number on on performance cuz what i mean is that like in a certain certain situation a pat on the back at the in the right moment can have a huge impact hmm. and that is not going to be covered by any evaluation system that we come up with, even if it kind of has the collaborative elements somehow in it. So I sometimes feel that we we should just like stop focusing so much on trying to evaluate individuals and just like focus on looking at the bigger picture, looking at the teams and looking at the organization as a whole and just like forget the fact that, like, we have individuals and, and we need to evaluate them
1: as individuals. How, how do you feel about that? We, we could go that far. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure I would go that far. But it's possible <laughs> to – and, and um, because – let's take your example, the pat on the back. This requires two individuals, the one who receives the pat and the one who gives it. Okay? From the one who gives it, it's a form of evaluation, okay? Sure. And it's a form of motivation, Sure. So how do I evaluate him on his ability to motivate his team? That, that's, that's real good because if I evaluate him properly, he will, do, he will give the right pat on the back whenever needed. And he will not give one when it's not needed, okay? which is not as easy as it sounds. Okay? For the one receiving the pat on the back, um, uh, how and when do I evaluate the quality of the reason why he got this pat on the back? Okay. Is it because he was a good team player Is it because at one point of time he has been able to extract a few things from his team and from the outside, combine them together and create something new or faster? That's a real skill. In a way, at one point of time, it would be good to evaluate that and and to tell him, well, you are going to get more pats on the back because I want you to remain in that mood of exploiting things and putting them together. Um, Now, the, this example is particularly good because the uh, if if you get a pat on the back because you manage well your team and your information and your team being in, in, the, in the in the in the large mean not only people within your administrative team it could be people from other, other parts of the organization you are you are really an asset for the company and we need to keep you so how do we show that to you how do we show that to the team because part of the evaluation system is also um, a window on the world of the company. If I evaluate somebody, if I reward him, it doesn't have to be a financial reward. The pat on the back is fine. If I have this reward system, it shows to the others that the ability to combine things, the ability to work the team, the ability to do this or to do that, the ability to extract the best practice and to apply it are things which are within the assets of the company. And, and somewhere, we cannot only have collective evaluation. We need to reward individuals within the collective, not only because they do a different job, but also because they are the engines, the pilots within the systems, because they are the people who are going to create the new culture. You remember when I once mentioned a minute ago the, the the notion of what do I do with what I learned in a forum? If I really share... This is a real asset I represent for the company. If I get the ex- if I extract the best thing I made or even the best people I met and I, I tell it to my colleagues, I really am an asset for the company. I help people to work better, to think better, to have a better network. So Shouldn't we reward that? Shouldn't we evaluate that as, as telling somebody you did a real great job because thanks to you and, your, and the forum, the colloquium you have been going there, we have been making huge progresses. We have discovered that this project was actually not valid and we have discovered this project should be enhanced, whatever. Okay. What are, in your
0: opinion, the most fundamental changes in the world that are happening now that are making existing ways of
1: working obsolete? The, one of the <clears throat> issues is is that we have too many at the same time. So it's very hard intellectually to grab at the same time the environmental changes, the geopolitical changes, in particular terrorism, but not only. Um, the demographic changes, and I mean quantity and aging. Wow, just these three are huge. Uh, and they're so huge that it's really hard for, for strategists or for senior executives to at least see through them. Now, on on the um, um, forecastable future, uh, on which we, uh, we from <laughs> which we started, um, I think we ca- we can see uh, a few um, for the next five to ten years uh, on the economic front, on the social front, and on the technological front. On the technological front, I think the, the biology, uh, artificial intelligence. Um, and a few others, uh, but these two in particular uh, are going to change a number of things in our lives, and we need to be ready to, to see how they will uh, they will impact. And you 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 heard I didn't didn't mention digital. For me, we live in digital, so we it's not it's not a coming change anymore. It, we live in it, okay. And, and and digital has done a large part of of what it can be doing, and it will be the more and more. But it's, it's not the point it will go on it's as if we would discuss electricity I mean I don't care discussing electricity electricity is a great invention It is changes our life every day uh, I, I would love to buy a Tesla but uh, hold on it's we are we are in it so it's it's not okay uh, while the, the ones here I mentioned are really big big questions so these are some in technology now in technology you could add things like uh, the hyperloop Um uh, <clears throat> like, uh, because Hyperloop may may change part of the way we think about transport and mobility, the autonomous vehicles, etc. You you can mention a number of technologies. And and this is... In a way, for each company, the point is okay let 's have a list and let 's check what may happen my my, uh, my company and my strategy in the future so technologies major technologies are, are changing what happens and obviously if i 'm in the biological or medical sector, CRISPR is a very important one if i 'm in most of our sectors, including services, AI will probably change uh, a lot my my sector so um, this is for, for, for technologies, and, and we should really get out of just digital is changing us. It's much more than that. Um, then on, 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 on economy, uh, we have um, very interesting changes currently, namely around what's called the platform economy, um, and, and uh, or the collaborative economy, or the sharing economy, call it the way you want, but the way um, we reorganize uh, the transaction costs in our society. This is really going to change everything. Uh, from an economic perspective, because the value is changing. Who is grabbing? The value is changing. Um, how we grab the value, how individuals react to that, uh, how uh, replicable is it or not? So is, is, it, is a platform giving a sustainable, competitive advantage or not? Is a platform becoming a destination or not? Um, uh, a, a place where you naturally go, to, therefore buying a certain num- number of things, you go directly. You think of Amazon because it's your destination platform, but not yet for fresh food for instance, or not not even for do-it-yourself stuff because you want to have an advice or whatever. So, what will be a destination? Um, so, th- this platform from an economic standpoint is, 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 is to, to me, fundamental. It's a reorganization of the way transaction cost reductions creates value for those who reduce the transaction cost and grab it. It was always the case. Every company has always been a transaction cost reducer, but now – with the new technologies, we can reduce transaction costs much faster in a, in a much larger number of fields. So, from an economic standpoint, this is one of the big t- t- things. In in um, in sociology, um, we have at least one or two things which I think are particularly interesting today. One is the next stage in social networks. Um, how are we going to relate uh, with each other, with knowledge, uh, with brandings, with products, with evaluations? evaluations of products and even of people in in the future, Um, social networks have just started to change our world. So they they, they will go go further. Um, And it's relatively easy to understand if you see that um, uh, social networks at the beginning were connecting people together. Today they connect also with brands, with companies, with ideologies, with meanings, with knowledge, um, with mythologies. So it's our whole society is changed by social networks. And it's uh, changed not only because it allows us to divulgate ideas or whatever, but also because it has changed our way of being seen and of sharing. We accept more and more to be seen as we are. So, for instance, uh, for one point of time, Facebook was more or less for private stuff, and LinkedIn was more or less for professional stuff. It's mixing today. So – and and many people don't care that their business relations see what they do for the holiday. So we have accepted this transparency. It's a huge change sociologically. Sure, Um, And we have accepted to share, not only to share our holiday picture, but to share our opinions, to share um, the, the way we approach things, to share our best ideas. Just if you think of this, our society from a sociological perspective will enormously change within the next 10 years because we are going to use social networks as a, as a prosthesis. We can't live without it now. Like our smartphone, we can't live without it. So what will we change in our society? How will it change the way we manage people? How will it change the way we relate to authority? Because within a company, authority has changed drastically um, and mostly thanks to social networks. In, in other words, yesterday as a manager, and yesterday means less than 15 years ago, up to 2004, roughly. Okay? I was a manager. I was in charge of transmitting information from the top to my team. I was in charge of getting my team and transferring to the top. I was in charge of coordinating my team. And if they had a problem, they came to me. All this is over. So because of social networks, if, my, if one member of my team has a problem, he doesn't ask me. He asks somebody else in another team who knows better than I do, obviously. Or he even asks outside. Um, as a manager, how do I use that? How do I encourage him to look for the best solution outside rather than coming to me? So h- how do I manage this frustration? Because in the past, part of my time was ded- dedicated to the task I just, I just mentioned. In the future, I have to dedicate my time to other things. What are these other things? How do, I man- how do I become really a good manager of people in order to have engagement, to have creativity, to have uh, even innovation, to have um, a, a sense of a feeling of engagement within a project? How do I give this sense of engagement in a project? You see, the role of the manager has changed drastically. I think that's huge. I mean, if you think about your example of a manager in
0: 2004 being like the crucial link in the organization transferring information back and forth and 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 so on. And if you think that it's the same person now uh being a manager in a company in 2016 and they are no longer the crucial link. In in a way, I mean, they they don't transfer information. Well, not anymore a transmission link on ex- Exactly, Absolutely. exactly. Absolutely. So yeah. and and they like uh, I guess from, from one viewpoint, they can see it as their power being diminished, that they're not as important as they used to be, and they need to kind of re, like, def- redefine themselves as managers and the, themselves in the role of a manager for them to feel that they are important and that they, they're still doing a good job. And, and I think that's, that's huge. That's a huge change to make in, in 15 years.
1: Uh, I, I fully agree, and, and in, in some cases, middle managers or proximity managers are really concerned because they feel they have lost, as you say, their, their power. Um, I, I would like to, um, to turn it around and to say they have one time. In other words, part of their activities were, de- were dedicated to stupid things like transmitting information, okay, while they are more intelligent than that. Sure. So what can we do in order to use their intelligence? That's really the big question today. And I'm a bit concerned here because I I see a lot of middle managers today still being too um, busy. Let me explain myself. How many people today, a lot, do complain about, I never see my manager. He doesn't have time for me. He's too busy. It is unacceptable. A manager has to have time to be available and to work with his team. If you are not available, then you really are at risk because that means what's your usage? What are you here for? Okay. If you are available, that means you have got many of the new elements of management and you are available for your team because your team needs coaching. You, your team needs help. You, your team even needs you to tell them, oh, you need this information. You should go these. these or there, or or, or over there. And maybe you should look into that source and and come back to us with with what you have learned. So there is a huge role for the manager today. And what I see is he has has won time, thanks to the new technologies, not lost power. And therefore the question is, how do I use this time? How do I get power back? How am, am I credible today? If my only credibility yesterday was to transfer information, frankly, yes, I'm dead. Okay. This actually creates a real high-level um, senior executive management role issue because when you see that your middle managers have one time, you have two possibilities. When you say, okay, each of them has won 10% or 15% of his time, okay, I will fire 10 or 15% of them. That's the financial thinking, okay? Or – how do I use, how do I help them use this time in order to have more creativity, more engagement from the people? And that's really what a strategy has to come in. We, we need, we, need, we really need to be careful between the financial strategy. New technologies allow us to, to win some management time and um A real development strategy. How do we use the free time, the free time of our managers, to make this company better, or a better place to live in, or more competitive, whatever you want, whichever objective you want to have? Um, and to me, that's really a senior management issue. The financial guy will say, oh, "Okay, guys, we can we can win ten percent of staff." No, I disagree. In some cases, yes, obviously, but in most cases, no. Sure, sure. So uh,
0: if if I was interested in becoming an augmented manager or an aug- augmented leader, uh, what would be the first steps that I should take? Besides
1: buying my book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 I think um, the, the, first, the first thing I would, I would advise to do is with part of the time you have won, we just discussed, uh, invest it in understanding the world. The world of today, not necessi- don't become a futurist. Understand the world of today and understand why the uh, uh, millennium or the little millennium generation, why do we think differently from you? It's, I, I, I love and hate the concept of young versus old, of, of generation. I love and hate because um, if you say the young are different of today because this or that, I hate this because young have always been different. In all generations since the past, you can find sentences for, from Platon or Socrates uh, on, on the young people. It's just fabulous. Now, but they are different because if you come back to the Piaget comment I meant at the beginning of our, of our session, um, they see the world today as they think it is today. They may not see it completely because they don't have the experience, but they see today. Um, we need, therefore, to enter into the shoes of a 20-year-old today, how does he see the world? First of all, he doesn't necessarily have a job, um, and he worries about having a job. So well, I'm 45 or I'm 50 or whatever. At my time, it was already difficult, but is it, was it as difficult as today? If not, I have to revise my judgment. He sees the world as a world where social networks are a prosthesis for him. He has to live with social – he cannot live without social networks. Okay, maybe I'm 55 and not that much in social networks. What can I do to understand better how this stuff is working? So it's opening my eyes on the world outside as is, as it is today, adding to it the experience I have, because some of the things which young people do believe are, are new are not new. They have happened in the past. We have gone through that. Can we add our experience to this in order to have a bit of of, of wisdom? to give to them, which frankly comes back to my time availability. Part of my time availability is to give wisdom to my team because I'm normally older than they are, even and even, even if it's only five or ten years older. I have a different world. I've been born in a different world, and therefore I can bring them some of the experiences of this different world, but I have to adjust to their world. Um, so that would be my, my most important advice. Use part of your time, of your free time, not to be stick it's stuck to your to your smartphone but to look at what happens outside thank you thank you
0: and that's that hope you enjoyed it don't forget to send me your questions at sami at boss level com or tweet them to at boss level pod have a great week everyone